So here's sort of our thesis, our guiding principle for today. Are you ready? Is that God created sex and sex is good. And I know a lot of you are like, yeah, it is. There's also some of you that are going, oh, I don't want to talk about this. Change the channel. I don't think we should be talking about this in church. And part of the reason that we're uncomfortable talking about sex in church is because historically the church has done a terrible job in talking about sex. So I grew up in the church. Here's what I heard about sex. Sex is gross. It's yucky. Stay as far away from it as you can. Do not do it until you're married. And then it's the greatest thing in the world. And you're like, what? That's weird. And so sex kind of became this off-limits conversation in the church, which is totally bizarre because let me say it again. God created sex and sex is good. Now the problem is we are all experiencing the impact of sexual sin. There's not one of us that isn't feeling the effects of sexual sin and brokenness. Maybe it's because of decisions that we've made and shame and regrets we have about our past. Maybe it's because of the decisions of a loved one. Maybe it's because of something that was done to us. We are all experiencing that impact of of sexual sin. And so there's this disconnect. See, we want to believe what God says. We want to believe that God created sex and it's this good thing. But our experience tells us something else. And so we're just uncomfortable in this area. Even conversations around sex get uncomfortable. And we go, we just don't want to talk about it. Just We know it's there. Put it over there in the dark. Let's not talk about it. We especially shouldn't talk about it in church. So here's what I wanna do today. Here's what I'm asking. Would you stick with me? Would you hang with me for a few minutes? And let's look in the Bible and talk about God's design for sex. See, because here's what's happened. Culture has hijacked sex. We think that we get to define sex and and sexual morality and what is moral or, or, or not. We think that we get to define sex and make judgments based on what the world thinks. And we use culture to shape our decision-making, but we don't get to define sex. God does. God created sex, and I believe that God's design is still worth fighting for. So if you got a Bible, get it out, turn it on, and I'm gonna try and stop saying the word sex so much, and we're gonna head to Exodus 20, Exodus 20, verse 14. And I think it's worth saying, I think it's worth just acknowledging because we all have so much baggage in this area. I think it's worth saying we can't undo what's been done, okay? We can't undo the decisions that we've made. We can't undo what we've done and we can't undo what's been done to us. So we move forward from today. And so please, please don't hear anything today as shame or, or judgment or condemnation. In fact, if you'll stick with me to the end, I think what you'll hear is quite the opposite. So we're in this series called Life is a Highway, and we're going through these things called the Ten Commandments, these old laws in the Bible. And what we found out each week is that the Ten Commandments are not just a list of God saying, no, don't do that. It's not just a list of don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. No, it's actually God's way of protecting us. We've said the Ten Commandments are like guardrails on a highway. Because on sort of the highway of life, you know that every once in a while, there is a sharp turn. Some days, 
Life is pretty foggy. It's hard to see what's coming. And, and God doesn't want us to go flying off the highway and crash. And so he gives us guardrails to protect us. Today, God is gonna put a guardrail around sex. And what I hope you'll see is that, yeah, certainly God says no to some things as it relates to sex, but he also says yes to a lot of things. So we'll see that. But first, the seventh commandment, Exodus 20, verse 14. It's really short. Here's what it says. It says, you shall not commit adultery. And, and this command is how you know that the commandments are real. This is how you know the commandments really came from God and Moses wasn't just making stuff up and writing it down and bringing it down the mountain. Because if he did that, we all know Moses would have come down with some plan. Well, God said I'm supposed to sleep with all the women, right? But that's not what he did. He said, God said, don't commit adultery. And here in Exodus, we'll just define adultery at its most simplest form, just a sexual relationship with someone you're not married to, okay? That'll be our definition. I wanna look at this commandment and I wanna zero in on one word and it's actually not the word adultery. I want you to underline, highlight, circle the word commit in your Bible. It says you shall not commit adultery. And when I think of the word commit, it's, it's more than something that we just do. To commit to something you, you invest yourself in it. You commit to it. You give something to it. So if you know who you're going to vote for, for example, you commit your vote to them. You have something to give and you give them your vote. If you borrow money from a friend, you commit to pay them back. You put your name and your character on the line. You invest yourself in committing to paying them back. And see, the world would have us believe that sex is just this physical thing, that it doesn't require any commitment. It doesn't require any investment. It can just be a physical thing. And so as long as everyone consents and nobody gets pregnant, then it's just a physical thing and it's done. But what God knows is that sex is not just physical. It's a commitment Sex requires a commitment, an investment to something, to someone where we commit, yes, physically, of course, but also mentally and spiritually and emotionally. So when God says not to commit adultery here, he's talking primarily to married people. And he's saying you can't commit adultery. Sex is more than just a physical thing. You can't commit yourself when you're already committed. You can't invest yourself with someone because you are already invested. You're already committed to your husband or to your wife. So you really have nothing to invest. You have nothing to commit. Imagine what's going on here in the ancient world. Marriage in the ancient world is, is not primarily about love. Marriage in the ancient world is primarily about survival and legacy. So for women in the ancient world, they needed a husband, they needed a man to provide for them and, and to protect them. And so they would get married and they'd have a family and their husband would provide for them. It was survival. For men, it's about legacy. They need to have babies. They need that family name to live on. And so they would get married and they'd take care of a woman, but they would start a family and they would have a legacy. And so marriages, I'm not saying there wasn't love. Of course there was love in marriages, but marriages started out somewhat like a contract. 
And yet, God says, even then, even in that context, what he knows is that this bond is created. Sex is, is this investment, it's this commitment that a bond is created between husband and wife and it's not meant to pull apart. And once you've invested in that, you invest all yourself in it, you don't have anything else to commit elsewhere. You don't have anything else to invest elsewhere. God is just pointing out that, that sex is not just physical. It is an investment. It is a commitment. You can't do adultery. You commit adultery. And you know, it's, it's ironic because we continue to find out as we march week by week through God's commandments, we continue to find out that these commandments, these old laws, they're not there to take away our fun. They're not there to restrict our personal freedom. They're there to protect us. God knows the real pain that is caused by adultery. He knows it because he designed marriage and he designed sex and the commitment to it is more than physical. And so he doesn't want his kids being torn apart. He doesn't want them being pulled apart because he knows that that will hurt and he doesn't want that. And so he gives this commandment, do not commit adultery. Now, here's what you might be thinking. All right, well, this was 3,500 years ago. Like, Times have changed. We've evolved. Like, like women don't need a husband to survive anymore. We're, we're sort of past that. And so you might wonder like, okay, all this stuff around, around sexuality, the idea of monogamy and wait till you're married and one man and one woman. I mean, is God just a prude? Like, come on, God, catch up. It's 2020. Like, like you gotta get with the times here. You know what's funny? We might wonder how serious God is about this stuff. I mean, is this really just a suggestion or is he actually serious? And you know what's funny? Last week's commandment was do not murder. None of us questioned how serious God was about that, did we? No, God doesn't want us murdering each other. Of course not. So what about this commandment, do not commit adultery? Is he, is he serious about this? Is this still a thing or is this some antiquated thing that, you know, thousands of years ago this mattered, but we've evolved past this idea? Jump over to the New Testament. Let's go over to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5. And last week we saw Jesus sort of pick up on the commandments. He talked about the commandment of do not murder. And he, he, he pulled back and he showed us God's heart. What was going through God's mind and in his heart when he gave the commandment do not murder He's gonna do the same thing for adultery. He's gonna open up, peel back, show us God's heart, what's going on in God's heart when he gives this command. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 5, verse 27. Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So there's our command. He says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus goes, look, okay, I get it. You haven't actually committed adultery. You haven't actually had sex with someone that you're not married to. Okay, cool. What's going on in your heart? And like he always does, Jesus blows up religion. He blows up this idea that God only cares about our behavior and he peels back and he shows us that God is interested in what's going on in our heart and in our mind. 
It's more than just behavior. It's at that character level. What are the thoughts that we have? What are the feelings that we have? And if we take all of Jesus' teaching on, on sexuality and we sort of broaden it and on adultery and, and, and his thoughts on sexual sin, we sort of get this, this bigger explanation. I think Jesus would say that the sexual sin he's referring to is, is really any sexual pleasure outside of marriage between one man and one woman. And you can figure out all the ways that that, that comes out. It's, it's pornography and it's inappropriate flirting and it's secret, these private intimate conversations and it's, it's sexual contact and we could make a list but just like Jesus says murder begins in the heart with anger, he says adultery, it's not just about behavior, it starts in the heart with lust. And watch this because lest you think Jesus isn't that serious about this, keep going, Matthew 5, 29. He says if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Whoa! I mean, I think you get the point, right? He's serious. And I don't think Jesus is actually saying that we should poke out our eye or, or, or cut off our hand, but he's saying sexual sin is that serious. Cut it out of your life. Whatever extreme measure you might need to take, you need to take it to get away from sexual sin. The apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. He says, flee, flee sexual immorality. And I think what he's telling us is that you can't manage sexual temptation. You can only run from it. See, we think we can manage it. We think we can kind of resist it on our own. You go, no, no, no. You can only run from it. And if you don't, it will destroy you. And again, I just imagine God, this loving father, who's like, I want good things for my kids. I don't want to see them destroy their lives. And so he's going, look, here's this guardrail around sexual sin and sexual temptation. He's going, get away, get away, get away, get away from it. He wants so much more for us. And so what I would just, what I would just encourage you is if you're struggling with sexual sin and sexual temptation, run away from it. Tell a friend, change your routines. Confess, get away from it as fast as you can so that it doesn't destroy you. That's how serious God is about sexual sin and sexuality. Let me see if I can explain it this way. Let me see if I can sort of explain God's design for sex and, and how he sees sexual temptation and sexual sin. So in the winter, in our house, we, we love to have a fire. Whatever reason, we just end up around the fireplace. The family kind of just migrates there. And we're all doing our own thing, but, but we like to hang out around the fire. So imagine if I just started building a fire right here on the stage, because I like fire. 
fire, it's, it's fun, right? You, you like fire. You love those fall evenings where you can, you can fire up the fire pit in the backyard, right? And everybody kind of sits around and has fun and, and laughs. And, and it's a good time around fire. So imagine if we just built a fire right here on the stage. And you're thinking like, this, this, this guy's an idiot. But no, but just go with me because fire's good, right? Fire, fire cooks our food. Fire heats our homes. Fire, fire gives us light. So let, we're, just gonna, we're just gonna light a, a fire right here on the stage because I want a fire. And, and, and fire's good. But you know the thing about fire? It's really good, but can also destroy things, right? Fire can burn down an entire forest. Fire can wipe out homes. Fire can literally destroy everything that we've built. See, the problem with this scenario is not the fire. The problem with this scenario is that if I light this, it's not contained. So just like, just like fire can be a good thing, it can also be destructive if it's not contained properly. You see where I'm going with this? Imagine the damage that would be caused if I lit this fire. And fire's a good thing, it's a great thing. But not in the wrong setting. In the wrong setting, it will destroy everything in its path. It will destroy lives. Fire is only good in the right setting. In the same way, sex is a great thing in the proper setting. If it's properly contained, if it's built in the right place, but if it's not, it will wipe out everything. That is why God is so serious about adultery because he doesn't wanna see us burn everything down. He can't stand by and watch while we destroy our lives and the lives of everyone around us. So he gives us a guardrail. He gives us safety and, and protection. He says, do not commit adultery. It's not to take away our fun. It's to keep us safe. It's to protect us because we have nothing to commit when we're already committed and outside of that container, it will just destroy everyone involved. God does not intend to make us uncomfortable or to shame us, but rather he intends to give us good things. So, what's the right container for the fire? Is, is there a right place for the fire? Is there something positive here? God says, don't commit adultery. Okay, is there something for us to do? Is there a positive? What is God's design for sex? And I wanna give you two passages. Write them down in your notes and, and you can go look at them later. Proverbs 5 and Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. And these are passages on God's design for marriage. And here's what God does. God makes this container and he says, this is marriage. It's like a sandbox. It's like a playground. You've got this sandbox called marriage and, and you can play in here. But outside of the sandbox, if you go and try and play outside of the sandbox, it's like lighting a fire where it can't be contained. But in here, in the context of marriage, in the sandbox, oh, have at it. And he gives us a few passages 
to define his design for sex. Let me read these to you. Proverbs 5, verse 15. He says, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares? Hint, he's talking about husband and wife in the sandbox of marriage. He says, let it be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed. And listen, may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. God is going, this is my design for sex. This is my design for the sandbox. It should be fun. God designed sex to be fun. He says rejoice. He says be intoxicated by it. He's painting a picture of fun. Yeah, that's right. Big, bad, mean, scary God. No, no, no. Good father who goes, have fun. Light the fire. Just keep it in the sandbox. You can't go outside of the container. It's going to burn everything down. So play, have fun in the context of marriage. Now he gives us another passage. Opening words of Song of Songs. And this is a poem between a bride and a groom. So listen to the bride's words. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name, remember that, your name is like perfume poured out. It's no wonder the young women love you. So take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. When the woman says your name is like perfume, she means your character. What she's saying is, I know this man. I know who he is. I know his character. I know who I'm committing to and investing myself in. She's telling us that God's design for sex is that it would be safe, that it would feel safe. God's design for sex is that it would be fun and that it would be safe. And where it's not is where we've broken it, where we've gone astray from God's design. And for you, if you, if you hear that and you go, this is not my experience. If, for example, you, you feel like, for me, sex is not safe. Like, can, can I first just say, can I first say I'm, I'm sorry? I'm sorry if, if you've been abused or mistreated or taken advantage of. I'm sorry, that is not God's design. If you're in a relationship right now where you're being abused or mistreated, get help, please talk to a friend. Call us here at Faith Church, we will help you get help. The fact is that, that not all of us, our experiences around sex are, are fun and safe because of sexual sin. And yet, I still think that God's design is worth fighting for. That sex would be fun and it would be safe. But that can only happen in a relationship. That only happens in marriage. And so we look at this commandment, do not commit adultery 
The idea that sex is only for one man and one woman in a lasting relationship of marriage. And we go, ah, that God. He's such a prude. He's so old school. I mean, we're, we're past the sexual revolution. We're, we're sexually liberated. It's different now. But maybe, maybe God loves us so much that he created this incredible thing called sex. And he wants us to have fun. And he says, husband and wife, look, go and play, but stay in the sandbox, stay on the playground. But within those walls, have fun. I want you to be safe. I want you to feel cared for. Maybe he's just a really good God. And I go back to where we started. That God created sex and sex is good. And the truth is, The church should be shouting this to the world, not hiding from it, not being like, oh, we shouldn't talk about that at church. No, we should be talking about this. We should be shouting this because it's from God. And it tells us how good and loving God is. But it's like a fire and in the wrong place and not contained. It can burn down everything and everyone in its path. And I think that that is what so many of us are experiencing. We want so badly to believe what God says, that he created this thing and it's beautiful and it's good, and yet we know what we've experienced. And I wanna talk about that for a minute. I wanna talk about the shame and the hurt that so many of us feel around this topic. And I wanna talk about this guy named Jesus. See. Jesus knows all about the feelings of of sexual shame and sexual sin. No, not his own, not because of his own journey. He was tempted, but never sinned. But Jesus was born into a family that was wrecked by sexual sin. Generation after generation after generation after generation, it it was there. He knew what it was like because it was all around him. Do you know about his family? In the Bible, in the book of Matthew, we read Jesus's family tree. Let me just tell you about some of these characters. Started with a guy named Abraham. Abraham slept with his wife's assistant. And then he pimped his wife out to the Pharaoh of Egypt. Oh, his son did the same thing, by the way, too. A couple generations later, his great-grandson actually slept with his own daughter-in-law. Go a little further in the family tree, there's a woman named Rahab. She was a prostitute. Her great-grandson is a guy named King David. King David committed adultery and impregnated the woman and then killed her husband in hopes that nobody would find out. Yep, his son was a guy named Solomon. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Should we keep going? Jesus' own mother, unmarried teenage girl when she was pregnant with Jesus. Now, it wasn't because of sin, but come on, they heard the whispers. Jesus' childhood, he, he heard people talking. He felt the stares. And what I'm saying is that Jesus knows the chaos of sexual sin and brokenness. It was all around him. He walks right into it, into a world that doesn't look any different than ours today. And maybe that's why two of Jesus' sweetest moments in the Gospels are with people 
burdened by sexual sin. One day he meets a woman at the well. She's been married a whole bunch of times. Now she's shacked up with some other dude. What does she get from Jesus? Just love, grace. Another story is about a woman caught in adultery. I mean, literally caught in the act of adultery. The religious leaders pull her out of the bedroom, take her in the town square. They want to stone her. Jesus? He just forgives her. He just shows her grace and mercy. We have this Savior who understands the weight of sexual sin, of all of our sin. And he would go to the cross, not with anger, not with resentment, but with gentleness, with love. He knows the shame that we feel because of our, our sexual past, and yet he doesn't tear us down. He shows us mercy and love. So I don't know, maybe this is all just really uncomfortable for you, because maybe you have a past that you're a little bit ashamed of. It haunts you. Some decisions that you made, some, some decisions, some things that were, were done to you, and you just don't know what to do with the shame. Guess what I would tell you is run to Jesus, take it to him, to this Savior who gives us grace, who chases off our accusers, and with forgiveness and love in his eyes, simply says, sin no more. You know, when I think of the sexual shame that, that many of us might feel, I think of Jesus on the cross. You know, most scholars tell us that Jesus was probably crucified naked. Imagine, imagine that on a cross, naked, exposed for everyone to see, to make fun of you, to spit on you. Imagine the shame that he must have felt. This Jesus gets us. He gets us. And so I want to end by revising my initial statement. I want to change it. I want to end with this. Sex is great, but it's not the greatest. Having a relationship with Jesus is. So whether you're widowed, divorced, single, dating, married, for all of us, this is our hope. The world would have you believe that the ultimate human experience is sex. It's not. It's having a relationship with Jesus. So I want to encourage you. Fight for God's design for sex. If you're bumping up against that guardrail of sexual temptation, run away. If you're thinking about stepping outside of the sandbox, don't. If you're carrying around guilt and shame from your past, run, take it to Jesus. He will give you mercy and grace and lead us forward, each of us, towards hope. Because the truth is, yeah, sex is great, but Jesus is greater. Would you pray with me? 
God, forgive us. Forgive us for all of our baggage, all of our history, all of our sin. God, we lay it at your feet. And I know, God, that you only look at us with love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. Thank you. Thank you for taking away our shame. Thank you for taking away our regrets, the things that haunt us. God, from this day forward, don't let any of us walk with shame. Help us to walk in love. God, your design for sex, designed in the sandbox of marriage to be enjoyed, it's not antiquated. It's not outdated, it's not prudish, it is the perfect design and we wanna fight for it. God, help us to follow your roadmap. Not what the world tells us, but what you have said in your word. God, I can't believe what a good God you are that you would send Jesus who knows all of our sins, knows all of our past and would take all of it on a cross bear the full weight of it so that we could be forgiven. God, thank you for giving us Jesus. Jesus, thank you for giving up your life so that we could have life eternal. It's in your name we pray, amen.